Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. For those of you who used to be somewhat regular listeners of the show, welcome back. Season 2 is officially underway, and though the fundamentals will remain the same, there will be some noteworthy changes. Of course, to any first-time listeners, as always, I highly recommend you take a moment to jump back to the intro of the project. It should be listed as a trailer for the show at the bottom of the list of episodes in your podcast player. It's only about seven minutes long and provides some pretty important context about the nature of this show, its aims, and how it differs from most. So again, I advise you starting there so that the premise of this project isn't totally lost on you. To my returning listeners, thanks for sticking around through the past couple of months, which have been pretty hot and cold from a content perspective. In short, a lot has changed since I decided to give this project a go. There have been plenty of ups and downs personally, and for the most part I think this show has reflected that, which honestly has probably been for the best. Much has been learned and many of my perspectives have evolved. The same can probably be said about each of my guests and hopefully you all as well. Which brings me to what will be different this time around. If there's anything to be gleaned from this project, it's that as individuals, our identities and perspectives are in a constant state of fluctuation and irreducible nuance. We're never quite the person we were a moment ago. Everything we experience changes us. Each conversation I have on this show is just a snapshot, a irrepeatable moment in time, a brief glimpse of what individuals can bring to the table. At the end of each episode, I could probably roll back the tape, start from scratch, and have a new conversation of a completely different nature, tone, and theme. So I think that about sums up where the project is heading. I guess I'll resist my inclination towards overexposition and wrap things up here, but one final update. I will begin trying to incorporate the audience's questions into episodes, both for recordings with recurring guests as well as solo Ask Me Anything episodes, so if there's anything you'd like to hear discussed or you'd like me to speak to specifically, please do give us a follow on Instagram or Twitter and send your questions. The audience isn't huge here, so there's a good chance your questions or topics will be featured. If you have anything at all, don't hesitate. I'd love to hear from you, and on that note, Thanks for giving this a shot, and I hope you enjoy the episode. You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey. The past is just a story we tell ourselves. control. All right. Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. Nevin, thanks for coming back. How you doing? I'm good. I appreciate you having me back and uh, and I hope you're well. Yeah. For a uh, second slash third time. Uh, 2.5, I guess we'll call it. 2.5 is nice. <laughs> but yeah, how... Uh, I know kind of a good bit has actually changed since the last time we did this, which was close to a year ago, really, or maybe, maybe a little bit after, maybe a little bit less, but still and in that general range of time. And yeah, I know just largely professionally, but, but other than that, I'm sure there've been lots of changes and just kind of curious how taking that leap and, and starting a business yourself, how, how has that been to, in, in some ways sort of begin that dream of, of, of being your own boss and, and doing things on your own 
versus facing that fear of, okay, this is, this is all on you now. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think, I think our previous conversation was not a whole lot after the January 6th attacks on the Capitol, as I recall, because I think that was one of the earlier, one of the earlier points we kind of touched on was like, Mm -hmm. how's this year treating you so far? And I I think it's not not off to a fantastic (laughs) start as it were. So it's interesting to kind of reflect on where we thought about how 2021 would be in January ish Mm -hmm. relative to to kind of the close as, as we are at now. Um, you know, in terms of taking the professional leap, I would say that, that for me, the idea of working for myself had always been an assumption is something that would happen at some point in time. Mm. I, I don't, I don't know if that puts it like in the realm, realm of goal or, or, or just like this will eventually kind of play itself out, but I'm not necessarily super set on it as like the next immediate goal. I think that's probably where I was at for a while. So coming out of school, coming out of the first job out of school was definitely a consideration. Um, you know, I think something that regardless of what kind of work you do, something that maybe all people, but specifically younger people experience going from school to the working professional world or whatever it mm. may be is, is a, or anytime, I guess you like take that next step into whatever, whatever you're seeking is a sense of imposter syndrome. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's like pretty typical. And, and that was, I think a lot of people I think experienced in law school. I certainly felt that in law school. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that subsided a bit um, in once you kind of, get your feet wet a little bit mm-hmm. in any sort of professional world and you, and you can um, have the opportunity to fail, I think, and then consistently enough, not fail terribly as to, <laughs> as to build maybe to, to some extent an organic self-confidence there um, in, in one's competence. But, you know, I think for, for my experience, you know, and this is probably true of, of, of anything, but the field that I'm in is, is kind of complex and, and fastly developing. Mm-hmm. And as long as that's the case, experience with older rules that are constantly being replaced is not necessarily as advantageous mm-hmm. as it might be in an industry where things really don't update very much. And so I think in the law in particular, as precedent changes, rules change. And so having practiced since the eighties isn't necessarily as big as a, a benefit as it might initially right. seem. And, and, and so many things in, in the law are based around written rules and statutes. And, and for most, I think litigators, um, there's enough of those out there that really just knowing them is, is virtually an impractical task. Everyone goes to the rule book to open up the rules mm-hmm each time they have a question. Um, And so, you know, I think there's definitely steps that you can probably go through a little bit quicker or maybe gut instincts that become more informed from experience. Um, But it wasn't my, I I didn't find that the really experienced practitioners were necessarily head and soldiers better than yeah. younger people. And, and and I think there's a lot of variables that go into that. I think there's a certain amount of um, 
resting on your laurels that I think all of us go through. I think there's a complacency when people reach a level of success that they're happy with Mm -hmm. that maybe the kind of like the hunger to really go at something just subsides a little bit. Um, for whatever reason, I mean, I think that that definitely was a big part of what informed my decision to just jump myself was Mm. that I didn't feel that from experience, I was so much less qualified than everyone else. Right. Um, and I think, and that's not coming from a totally unfounded place of like arrogance or something. Yeah. Again, I think, you know, from going into law school and again, going into the profession, um, I felt the opposite, which is like, I'm barely in this position and, and probably from some sort of fluke, let me just sort of yeah. keep my head down and not, and not make mistakes and, and try to, um, you know, not, not drop the ball. But I think... Yeah, some exposure. And I'm thankful for the pathway I was able to take, which is um, which is to say I'm thankful that I didn't have to go out on my own immediately. I think mm, there's a yeah. massive difference between my pathway, which was um, a year and a half of practice before that was really something that I did and someone doing it straight out of, of school. And again, I think I don't think these points are totally linked to just the legal practice. I think that's probably true for a lot of things. Um, Getting, getting the opportunity to try and fail on someone else's dime and also behind someone else's name, I think gave me, yeah. um, Yeah. That opportunity that if I just out the gate had been me, I don't know who I, you know, how that would have worked. I think Mm -hmm. that would have been really very challenging. So I'm super thankful for that. And, and each opportunity that presented itself along the way, um, I found myself in a position where I just left another job that I had moved for and it was sort of, you know, do we jump back into the job hunting world, which is something I'd increasingly become more, you know, in law school, you're looking for a job. Even when you have a good job, you're often looking for jobs simply to understand your market rate or just understand how the market's fluctuating. Mm. Um, You know, do I want to jump back into that world again or you know, is now the time kind of thing. And and maybe part of it is the pandemic. We all were forced to interact digitally. And so yeah. some of the overhead startup costs that are prohibitive, like having an office, mm-hmm. I didn't feel any need for because I, for most of my legal career, have interacted yeah. totally digitally with everyone. And it's really few and far between that I have to do anything in person. Uh, and that's the nature of my practice. That's not, it's not everybody. Um, so, so that is something that maybe again, out of law school, 2019 would, wouldn't have been a factor and may have been more prohibitive and it may have been why I made the choices that I did. Mm -hmm. But I think that, that that's maybe an upside to COVID is people's increased comfort with, you can get things done just as easily over email as you can meeting and probably more efficiently, Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately. So I think that that's a lot of like the context that led that led to that decision yeah yeah i mean it it definitely seems like from from a professional perspective it was it was quite practical and though of course there's there's a clear decision to be made there that that on either side probably could have worked out okay i think you've you've done a good job of obviously thinking through it and it's not like you were like hey i'm just gonna take a leap of faith here and then see what happens and then this is something that is even necessarily had that much more of a floor than than the alternative, but 
at the same time, I'm kind of curious, somewhat just generally, but also because it's something I, to some degree, face now personally and in my own life, how you, now that you sort of have your feet under you a bit, you've been, I guess it, it's hard to remember, but it's, it's, six -ish it's months. been about six months since, since you began. And, uh, yeah, I'm curious more so on a personal level where you find yourself on this sort of, this sort of paradigm of, okay, how are your, your levels of stress, anxiety, even this imposter syndrome that you've spoken to, just the, the amount of pressure that, Hey, this is, this is my deal. And if I fuck up totally on me versus quality of life, satisfaction with what you're doing, being able to choose who you work for, that sort of stuff. How has that sort of played out for you thus far? Yeah. I mean, I think that's been difficult and, and I've been, I've tried to be intentional about, you know, I think step one is being, being honest and transparent with, with myself about tracking those things, concerns with those things and not, you know, I think, I think being able to rationalize well is part of my job, but it's also, a, it can be a horrible quality in people is being to able mm. to rationalize bad decisions. And it's, yeah. it, you know, I think, um, you know, I think about it, a couple of my friends who have had bad experiences that are self-caused because they were smart enough to rationalize mm. away why it wasn't a bad yeah. decision. So I really try hard to be really honest with myself throughout the process. And then where I reach a point where I have questions, even if it's just like, is this feeling normal? Mm -hmm. um, I reach out to other people who I think are in either a similar position at this moment as me or are some 20 years past this moment, but but have the, the benefit of hindsight to reflect on even if that's a feeling that they believe they had at that time, maybe the correctness of 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 that feeling a and b how to respond to it. Mm -hmm. So I think I look to my my immediate peers in the sense of dealing with imposter syndrome. Am I alone in this experience? And very typically, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. right? it's, it's 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 rare that that you're super alone in any kind of experience. And then second, okay, how best do I deal with this? I'll certainly take in the input of my peers, although if they're figuring out just like I am, they don't necessarily have any, they don't necessarily have more insight than I do. Mm -hmm. People who are well past it do necessarily have, I think, more insight yeah. to the extent they're willing to share that or able to share that is, is maybe where the the difference is. But I have a couple of attorneys who um, who are long time or, or entire time solo practitioners, um, and they've been really helpful when I've been at those sort of crossroads. Um, you know, I think I've had to be much more intentional about, um, setting boundaries than I think I was when I was an employee for someone, mm -hmm. because I think those boundaries are almost subconscious when you're someone's employee. Yeah. The reality is it's not really your problem when you're someone's employee. Mm -hmm. So even if you're doing the little bit of you know, overtime work or you're, you're pushing it yeah. here and there. Those are natural, I think, flows of how work is, particularly mm -hmm. if, if you're in an in-demand sort of job. Um, it's different when everything very much is yours and only mm -hmm. your problem. And and one can get in a, a nonstop work loop. So so one thing that I said to, to a kind of a mentor of mine, maybe 
maybe two or three months ago, so kind of halfway between start and where we are now, was that I was kind of had this feeling that all of the time that I was spending not working was intentionally R&R time to be more prepared for work. Mm. And in that sense, even though you're not working 24-7, every minute of 24-7 is intentionally planned for production, mm. right? And you really don't do that, I think, as much when you're an employee. Sort of like, now I've worked, I've worked the sufficient amount, at least yeah. <laughs> A, not to lose my job and maybe B, to, to, to do whatever my goals are. And now I have all this other time. Whereas <clears throat> I think I was in this space where I was just like, all right, I've worked the amount of hours I want to work and now I have to stop to go do these other things to give my mind a break so that later I can come back to working. Mm -hmm. And I think by framing it that way, that was not super healthy. I think that that was mm. putting me in a place of stress growing because um, because then I was, I was operating as though every hour of my day was potential production time. Mm -hmm. And that if it, is, if it isn't active productive, it needs to be inactive by being R&R &R to plan for more active. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I talked to someone who's, who's run their own business for a long time. And I was just like, you know, and, and in this particular case, he works in, in kind of a nonprofit in a, in a world where he very much could never stop working. Like there's no end of the in pile for him. Mm -hmm. And he's very passionate about this work. Right. And so it's just like, how are you in this position where there's, there's no end of the, like, how do you stop work at the end of the day? Mm -hmm. And then how are you not thinking about it in all the other time? And yeah. how, is, how is the rest of your existence not kind of built around just getting back to working again? Mm. Um, and so he was helpful. And, 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 and the answer I didn't like, frankly, um, which is that you need to set hours that you're working and hours that you're not working. Mm. And, and a lot of what I liked about going out on my own was that I didn't have those boundaries set by someone else and right. that I every day was totally flexible to what's the tasks of the day and where am I going to fit that in the course of my day for time. I think the reality of that was that I was really kind of mentally working all of the time. Yeah. And so if I said, oh, I have, you know, five hours on this to do today, so I'm going to take a break, you know, for this period of the morning, it really wasn't a break. I was just sitting trying to give my mind a break mm -hmm. before. And then that's really not a break is right. what I think I was finding. So um, I've had to do something that I, I that wouldn't have been in my business plan at, at the start, which is these are the times that I'm working. And that's a pretty like hard rule. Mm. And in the same way that if I was an employee, there's naturally exceptions to that when, when there's just a lot more going on that I have to, I have to, react to in the same way that I would have to if I was an employee. Mm. Um, but if if 100% of your time is spent directly or indirectly focused on the work, then you're always working. And yeah. I think that that was something that I had to learn from practice and, and suffer from mm. <laughs> to then ask about how can this not be this way, take advice I didn't like and apply it, and then find the results I was actually looking for. Yeah. So that was kind of, I think that's been a lot of like the last three months is going from a similar work rate handled differently mm. than it was at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's super relatable. And I, I think it's, there's, there's several levels to it really, because there's the, the one dimension or maybe that first question, which it seems like you found your own answer to, but is often even hard to answer on an individual level, which is, 
is is it even in principle right or or the best move for you and your future to care about other things right like there's there's definitely this idea within the entrepreneurship space if you will and and some people i mean it's maybe polarizing but often those who are hyper successful are the ones that essentially say like if you're going to go through this period of life where you are trying to start something up you have one responsibility really and you should either be spending your time working on your project on your idea whatever it is or as you were kind of saying having that same rationale of okay yeah you also need to exercise and, and eat right and get your sleep because that allows you to continue to work really hard and that's that's it like that's that's your life and anything outside of that it probably means you're going to be out competed and obviously there's a logic to that I, I don't think it sounds particularly healthy but but it is something that a lot of people swear by and that a lot of people live by and in a, in a material sense serves them very well right as as you might imagine so i think there's that first order question where it's like is it even is it even right for me if i'm if i'm going through this period of of uh of sacrifice if you will to kind of get whatever it takes to get anything going and i think maybe in your case it's not as extreme it's not like you're trying to create a startup from scratch that is this super ambitious thing that you're gonna have to recruit a bunch of people to, to make this all work i think what a lot of what you do is is maybe a little more transactional but still at the end of the day there's still a reality in which no one ever calls you and you make no money right <laughs> that's 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 something that yeah. you you have to you have to be ready for what if the calls stop coming right yeah. and and i think dealing with that pressure is is much easier said than done once you're in it and i, I can't say i've even really experienced it but i i know a lot of people who have have been entrepreneurs in, in different ways and i've been involved in some startups myself and and everyone handles it differently and it's hard to say what is what is truly the best method but everyone has to sort of find some sort of balance and, and set some sort of boundaries and i think i actually a previous guest of the show um cornelius actually and, and i'm paraphrasing but he had a really interesting quote that we discussed a little bit on a previous episode which is essentially that you have to be the ceo and the janitor mm -hmm. of your life mm -hmm. And I think that certainly applies to being some sort of an entrepreneur as well, that mm -hmm. you have to sort of occupy all of those roles mm -hmm. at once. And you have to be able to almost look at yourself from a bird's eye view mm -hmm. and be like, I'm, I have to be my own boss. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's not mm -hmm. like, Hey, this is great. I'm my own boss. Like no one gets to tell me what to do. It's kind of like, you have to tell yourself what to do mm -hmm. some of the time and consider what is in your best interest. Mm -hmm and play all of those roles until maybe you're able to grow something in which mm -hmm. someone else can actually help you. Mm -hmm. But you, you have to take out the trash. Mm -hmm. You have to clean the fucking toilets mm -hmm. and you have to make those high level decisions. Did both of those today. So <laughs> killing it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and again, it, I think it was intended to map onto just like everyday life as well. Yeah. But I think it, it particularly came to mind in what you were saying that you, you sort of, and what we were talking to before we started recording, like you, you, being your own boss is, is very exciting, but you also can be a shitty boss to yourself. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't mean that you're fundamentally going to be a good one. And I think that maybe gets lost a little bit when people think about this very romanticized idea that we we have here in the States, which I think is great 
uh, about starting your own business and, and that being this American dream, but also that I think everyone, we get very accustomed to being in this mode of being a worker. And so it's like, I'm, I'm going to, you know, put in my time and, and do what I need to. But when you go out on your own, you really have to, you have to occupy all of those roles for yourself. And that, that just presents new and, and interesting challenges, which I'm sure sort of preaching to the choir to you on this because, because you're the one who's done it and I haven't, but it's, it's definitely something that I've, I've seen pretty consistently across the board. And it's always interesting to see how, how people manage that over time and how that sort of pans out. Yeah. I like the quote and, I'm, and I've been thinking about it since you said it. I mean, I, this is maybe a factor that, that, that is almost assumed the opposite of it in some way from what you said, not, not intentionally, but it isn't necessarily my perception of, of my current solo practice as the last legal job I'll have. Mm-hmm. That isn't a, a foregone conclusion in my mind. Right. And so my view is by being the CEO and the janitor, if or when I I become an employee again mm-hmm. or become through the current manifestation or otherwise – a part of the wheel rather than the entire wheel. Mm. I am in a situation now that I was not in going into my, my first professional job of really appreciating the janitor, Mm. like truthfully. So I think, I think there's something to be said about people who have run their own businesses may, they may be better employees in some respects, Mm -hmm. which is to say, I'm probably much more appreciative now of all of, to, to quote somebody who's with the, the kind of the little pixie dust that goes into all the, the parts of the job mm-hmm. that I was really privileged to um, kind of be saved from in my first job. It was yeah. my, my responsibilities are very specific and everything that was revol- kind of revolved around that was taken care of. And now nothing's taken care of. Mm-hmm. And I try to take care of things so as to get to that specific thing as much as I can, which is actual legal billable work mm-hmm. um, comes last after all of the, yeah. the housekeeping um, in, instead of the other way around. So I think I'm in a position now where if for whatever reason, tomorrow I decided I was going to work for another law firm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that I was very appreciative of the of the support staff at, at the places I have worked, but there's a difference between like maybe this is interesting sympathy and empathy, right? Sympathy is something you can have for an experience you really don't understand. Mm-hmm. And empathy is where you understand it and have that, that relation. Yeah. So I think I empathize now with every member of the support staff of a law firm because I have to do all those things. Mm-hmm. I have to be the accountant. I'm literally the janitor. Mm-hmm. I have to keep track of supplies. I have to do all of the kind of the things that I think a lot of uh, firm attorneys and again, to the extent this is like more broadly applicable, professionals who are hired for for X, when in reality there's the whole alphabet worth of work that goes into something, is you lose appreciation for just how much of those other things are. So I, I think that's one point is that I think in those ways, I'd probably be a better employee today than I was coming out of law school. Mm-hmm. On the other, I think the same the same aspects that made me want to be a solo are there and maybe stronger, which is I'm really uncompromising about things. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult when you work with people sure. who have different opinions. And so 
Um, I don't have to take that into consideration at all when I'm the decision maker. Um, so while on one hand, I think I would be really good with those who are picking up all the parts of the job that frankly, I don't like as much, or maybe aren't as good at, and maybe the two are, are connected as another part of the job. But when it comes to not just that part, but now all of the job, mm -hmm. I have a view as to how it should be done. Yeah. And so as an employee, it was like, oh, these things are being done around me. I have no input and I'm getting an output and that's fine. I think that'd be more difficult for me now, particularly in terms of like timeliness. If I think I could be doing this faster and you're doing it, so why is it slower? Mm -hmm. I think that's probably a view that I might have going going somewhere. And then again, you know, maybe the the larger questions of are we going to take this case? If we are, what are, how are we going to set it up? Like the the really structural questions around my work projects are in, are entirely my decision right now. I can seek to the extent I'm interested in other people's opinion. Um, but when you're working with or for people, you have, you never have the say. Mm -hmm. um, because even if you're the decision maker, you have to politically manage the wants and expectations of other people. And that's just a total non-factor of my life right now. Yeah. I, I'm making every single one of the decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that has stress, but I think for someone who... I think both have stress, right? I mean, I think having to compromise on things you think are wrong is probably really like tormenting. Yeah. Uh, particularly when you turn out to be right about how wrong that decision was. Exactly. Because I told you so is not really the best position to be yeah. in a lot of the time. No, it doesn't get you very far. Yeah. And it pisses off the people who, who yeah. I mean, like there's no winning there. Um, so even if I make a decision wrong now, I try to just be in a place where any decision I'm making is the best it, it, I can feel later is the best decision I can make at that time based on the information I had. Mm -hmm. And I think if it's the best extent you can live that way, um, it, it's best. That's that's a goal I try to keep. Mm -hmm. But I think those, I mean, I, I, I think that's how the experience has changed me. Um, that's a little bit less responsive to your main point, which is like this kind of idea of to, to use a very specific example, which isn't necessarily what you meant, but the Gary Vanderchuk sort of mm -hmm. approach to business, sure. which is like, and he's just insufferable to me. <laughs> um, I think that's a really bullshit approach, like on a lot of levels. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I'm fortunate to have met people, particularly in law school, who I consider to be much more intelligent than myself and much more competent in the chosen track both of us have chosen yeah. for whatever reason, experience, education, whatever. And those people have done really incredible things and don't live that way. Mm -hmm. And so maybe what I would say is, is like, you know, there's this idea of like a confirmation bias and that's not what I mean, but, but kind of similar just in, in the literal sense of the terms. I think there's like a thing called a success bias, mm -hmm. which is I've tried something and it was successful this way. Therefore, and this is where the illogical assumptions made, that is the way. Yeah. So, so in the same, you know, the, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. I think there's so many ways to be successful. And then it's who's determining what successful means. Gary Vaynerchuk might not consider my business at any juncture yeah. to <laughs> be successful, right? He might not consider... For, for whatever reason, principles that, that it just don't match or otherwise. Um, I think his life is one I don't aspire to have 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm not really interested in his formula for success because if what he embodies is success, I'm uninterested in that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a place that I kind of, I, I felt at my first law firm and, and contributed to why I left is that I looked kind of up the ladder, you know, where, if I keep climbing this ladder, what does that look like? How does that actually manifest here? And so I kind of looked at like the three most, two or three most profitable attorneys at that firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't aspire to be like those people. Yeah. And maybe if I had started it from where I did, I wouldn't have left. Because it's like, oh, this is the pathway to become like a thing, which I would like to be. Mm. But it wasn't there. Um, and and maybe I don't have the archetype in what I'm doing now by myself. But I also don't have the restrictions of being forced into an archetype. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a track without a specific path in a way. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I don't think that any one way around it is the correct way. There's probably a lot of ways that it's pretty objectively wrong. Mm-hmm. But I just, I so don't think that like the Gary Vee approach <laughs> to life is 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 reasonable. And I have friends who have started their own law firms pretty quickly out of law school who very much buy into that. Mm-hmm. And they're doing well. Yeah. Good for them. That's working for them. Um, I think my... My main contention with it is I don't think it is a a legitimate long-term strategy. Yeah. And that's kind of what you were saying is like in this first point of startup, working really hard. But I think that's really, again, it's like the definitions is what matters. When do you stop treating it like a startup? Mm-hmm. Does Jeff Bezos still treat Amazon like a startup? How has his approach to work changed? Mm-hmm. And, and isn't the case that once your company is no longer a startup is when it has the most money potential? Right. Like when when are you going to stop putting your foot all the way on the gas mm-hmm. in that? Fr- I don't think you can because I think it's I think it is the the Gary V I guess just to put a title on it kind of is is all gas no brakes to use that <laughs> term right? Mm-hmm. And that's not sustainable for people. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a me statement. I just don't think that's sustainable for people. So even if it is for Gary Vee for 50 years of his life, and then we find out next week that he's, and I don't hope this for him by any means, but like addicted to all sorts of drugs that are the only reason he's able to get up in the morning, mm-hmm. I would really be very surprised by that. Sure. And I think that that's very often the case with people who approach things that way. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's a valid long-term strategy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with your perspective there. And I guess maybe just to give it its due, I think anyone who who maybe, from my perspective, anyone who supports this sort of approach, who I feel like has any real credence in that sense, has to give that caveat, right? That has to be there that this isn't sustainable, right? This is a sprint. This is this is a few months. This is a few years, which is, is you can argue, what is a reasonable sprint right if something is like okay i'm gonna take 10 years of my life for this it's like well is that (laughs) is that a sprint at that point probably not right at a certain point you could say okay maybe i'll give a few months of of really not loving my life or or a few weeks or a few days i mean it depends on how you think about time and how precious it is Mm -hmm. and i think that's where it starts to get a little bit harder to 
really make decisions because how much can you really sacrifice on the front end for some sort of idea of long-term quote unquote success if that may never come and if it doesn't have you just wasted your life but yeah i mean i think anyone who who is really worth listening to is probably saying like hey this is you can only do this for a very brief period of time do you and think so, gary v fix that that i really don't know okay. because i honestly don't pay attention okay. to him almost at all and I've, I've been exposed to his content probably as much as the average person because it's everywhere and a lot of people really like him i guess or i don't know if they like him but they pay attention to him at least he's relevant and you know his, his stuff gets out there right mm -hmm. he's, he's he's doing his job well mm -hmm. you know his mm -hmm. his content plays mm -hmm. it um his strategy works but yeah I, I don't know if he's even someone who has that sort of caveat or asterisk there saying like hey, you can do this for for a couple of years but in the long term it's it's gonna fuck you if you don't actually find some balance mm -hmm. but that even aside, I think it's it's definitely a a perspective worth maybe considering in in a in a very short term sense. Where I've I found myself maybe there a few times in life where it's like okay, a few months, this is going to be a little rough, right? I, I understand that I'm I'm probably not like maximizing my enjoyment of my life during this time, but maybe it's worth it for for some sort of long-term gain and i think everyone has to has to do that um on some level it just to get through school or whatever right it's like hey you've got this big project that's due in two weeks or you have exams and it's not going to be a fun two weeks and then as you progress through life maybe that time starts to expand a little where it's like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna spend a few years doing this or i'm gonna spend a few months whatever it is and uh it even kind of actually brings me back to something i, I wanted to give a little time to before when you sort of mention this idea of not that you think that your business will fail, but even if it does, or it just doesn't work out, you want to move on from it. It will make you a, a better employee in the future. And I think it's a perspective that, that definitely resonates with me a lot, especially as someone who personally, professionally, and in all kinds of ways, I've I've been somewhat prone and again, I don't mean to, I, I consider myself a very lucky person in general, but I, I've been somewhat prone to, let's just say having the rug pulled out from under me in, in weird circumstances in sure. life. And generally I don't live with a lot of fear of that, despite that. And I, I generally feel as though even if things don't work out how I imagine they will, I'll be better for it. And even if, the job I'm working or the project I'm working on, whatever it is, it, it, it doesn't, the outcome that I maybe want doesn't come through. It's still the process of doing it. And, and what I potentially gain from that is, is something still worth doing, even if the outcome is guaranteed to not be what I expect. And I guess to bring that all full circle, there's, I love to quote things and not know what they're from. So I'm just going <laughs> to do that again. But there's this idea that you essentially pay to learn if you choose to go to college. And then if you make it through that and then you get a job, you, you essentially are now being paid to learn. And, and I think it's, it's a perspective that has generally served me well in life that I think no matter what that circumstance is, it, it is this sort of great privilege 
at the beginning of your career, at least to have the opportunity to receive money, to make mistakes and, and to learn. And even if things don't go perfectly, even if things don't pan out, you are in, I mean, if, if you're not paid, I guess that kind of sucks, right? You know, if it's an internship situation, right. but that's also right. why people take, internships. take unpaid internships right. is that even if it's something you don't even really like doing. And again, this is coming from someone who generally tries to just take things in stride, maybe sometimes to a fault that even if I don't love what I'm doing at the moment, it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm getting to learn something I, I wouldn't otherwise I'm, I'm acquiring skills, I'm acquiring experience and I'm getting paid to do that. And I think maintaining that perspective has certainly helped me in life move through things and, and still feel like I'm progressing towards what I want, even when these sort of outcomes come to fruition that are just yeah. kind of like, well, what the fuck? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. Um, so all that to say, I think, I think where you're coming from definitely, definitely makes sense to me. And I think it is something that at least has allowed me to, to not get so laser focused sometimes in, in the moment, as far as what just most recently happened or what I really want right now, as opposed to if this is something that I feel like can benefit me in the future, it's, it's building character. It's, it's building skills. It's, it's, I'm learning something. It's, it's not necessarily a loss, even if tomorrow all your business dries up and you've got to be in that place again of mm -hmm. what now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I think I super agree on, on the perspective element and where just that argument kind of led my head. There's, there's this movie I really like called Mulholland Drive by mm, David yeah. Lynch. Yeah. And, and that kind of in a way like the, Unwritten, unwritten thesis of that movie, which kind of takes, it's kind of in two parts, mm -hmm. is literally just a shift in perspective of, yeah. of, of the main character. One in which the character, consciously or unconsciously, wherever you want to put, put the blame on how perspective works, um, but certainly to the extent that it is conscious, makes the choice to see the world in a positive way opportunities as opportunities and failures as learning mm -hmm. and and the second part is one in which everything happens to this person mm. and that that in, in a way she's the least culpable which is a way of removing personal responsibility mm -hmm. um but in losing personal responsibility no accomp i mean there's nothing good mm -hmm. in that in that view. And that person ends up in that movie, spoilers, killing herself in, sure. in that perspective. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's like, I, I'm, I'm scared to ever say like a hundred percent of something, but like 90% mm -hmm. of it is perspective. I feel like, yeah. Um, and making that conscious choice because there are things that will happen to all of us in life outside of our plans and outside of our control. And what you can control most immediately is your reaction to that thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think even if you view it in an, in an emotionless, neutral, detached way, as though you're having to make this decision for a stranger, you would try to move forward the most practically effective way. Mm -hmm. And I would say that 
in almost all cases, it's practically ineffective to respond to things as though, why is this happening to me? Mm -hmm. Um, There are some situations where it's really relevant to understand why things are happening to you, right? (laughs) Some things do happen to people. Um, But it isn't necessarily true that even in those cases, handling it that way is going to get a better resolution for that person. Mm -hmm. Some, some situations are at least in, in, in the, you know, everything's temporal, but in the immediate sense, unavoidable. Um, and, and to the extent that's true, I think taking the most positive view on it, that you are consciously able to, to really act on and, and, and live is really like all you can do in life most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a, a, a feature in you that I admire and I think that it is a feature that exists in people who tend towards success. Mm-hmm. It's another one of the reasons why I hate Gary Vee is that I don't think <laughs> that life is a sprint. And I think handling things like sprints is is a poor way to handle life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the marathon that I would view life to be, or even the relay race, or maybe like the weird things they do in the winter where you're cross-country skiing and then you're shooting at something or something, right? <laughs> yeah. The weird Biathlon sport. Or yeah, by yeah. yeah. What, however, however that manifests, it certainly to me isn't a sprint um, in any kind of short distance sense. And I think that the perspective long term of I'm going to grow from this, this will lead towards improvement and and maybe even to the extent that, that you want to change how things are happening, I will do what I can to decrease the extent to which external forces decide my outcomes. Mm-hmm. I think that's always a reasonable want for free people. Right. Um, you know, and there's probably a more eloquent way of, of, of summing those ideas up. That's probably what most of the field of philosophy and, and, and maybe poetry and others sure. attempt to do. Um, but yeah, I think to the extent you can live that, that's really most all you can do because you don't start, you don't choose your starting position, mm-hmm. and the choices you make in terms of their impact on your on your end position, people I think reasonably disagree about. But it's not a hundred percent, and so at least whatever that difference is, you have no control, and you may as well just view it positively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I guess to to maybe add on to that just a little bit even from like a, a very practical, you could even say evolutionary biology perspective, like we're just not, we're not good at sprinting. <laughs> it's not, it's not something that we were really meant to do. We, we largely made our, made our money uh, as a species from just our, our marathon capacity, if you will. And I, I hate any sort of long distance running, but I think that I have some respect for people that do it even in this sort of crazed sort of way, because that is somewhere in our DNA is that mm. we just, we would just run after things and they would get tired and eventually we would catch them mm-hmm. before we even really had weapons. Mm-hmm. It was just like, I will You're eventually catch this deer, yeah. even though it's five times as fast as I am. If I just keep going, eventually it will be exhausted because it's not designed to do this and I'll just be able to tackle it essentially. Mm-hmm. And so Again, you know, maybe it's not the most elegant metaphor, but I think there's something to it that we're not really built that way to we're not gazelle out in the mm-hmm. in the savanna per se, and that we are sort of what we're good at as humans is being sort of resilient in the long term and not maybe giving up as opposed to being like i'm i'm gonna I'm gonna chase 
this deer uh, in, in an actual sprint situation, give all that I have in five minutes and then be exhausted on the ground. Mm-hmm. But, and, and I think maybe just to jump back and, and potentially close the loop on the whole, we'll just say Gary V sort of perspective sure. that I think. Such an unexpected thing. turn in this conversation. <laughs> yeah. He would come up, but I love it. I love it. But uh, and more just like a, a breadcrumb to leave for for you because I think it's something you'd really enjoy. There's a podcast I'll I'll link in the show notes and I've actually talked about before. Again, the actual name of the woman I won't say now because I just can't remember these sorts of things. But she's a, a professional poker player. I know you play a little bit of poker, so I think you'd enjoy it just from that perspective. But it's essentially all about probabilistic thinking and the ways in which people approach life and how poker is like an actually very elegant metaphor for life as opposed to something like chess, which is is quite interesting and and cognitively demanding. And I'm a chess player myself far more than I am poker, but the fact that, that chess is sort of this very fixed game in which you understand all variables and you, you are in, you're never necessarily having to guess. And you could, if you could play a perfect game of chess, not that we haven't solved it per se, but if you could, that would be it. And if someone is genuinely like an order of magnitude better than you, they'll essentially beat you every time. 100%. Whereas in poker, there's always a, a high degree of risk mm-hmm. and randomness mm-hmm. that you have to account for, like in life. Mm-hmm. And when you were talking about this sort of idea that we see people who are successful in this very public way. And so we're just like, Hey, give me your formula to success is essentially like someone just, you know, winning a a great hand in some major poker tournament, who's a total amateur, but they win. And we assume they immediately attribute their success to some sort of skill or ability when, and, and make no attempt to audit that success because it's success. Right. And everyone, I mean, not everyone, but people who generally do okay, they do audit their failures, mm-hmm. right? And like when something goes wrong, you, you lose a major hand, mm-hmm. you're like, fuck, what? Okay, clearly something went wrong, mm-hmm. but we rarely audit our successes or even start to think about how it could have been a quote unquote greater success mm-hmm. where sure I won the hand, but I actually could have played it a lot better. I could have bet mm-hmm. a little bit different here. Mm-hmm. I actually got lucky and... Yeah, it's just a very fascinating conversation because it's it's with a doctor as well. And he, mm-hmm. he talks about how that maps onto the medical profession. And mm-hmm. like when someone dies on the table, there's this huge sequence of things that happens after that as far as auditing how that went wrong. But when surgery goes well, when someone saves someone's life by doing something improvisational, something clever, something brave in the moment, no one cares. Mm-hmm. And so it creates this sort of environment where people just – doctors don't want to take risks because mm-hmm. they don't want to get in trouble mm-hmm for killing someone, mm-hmm. and I'm giving air quotes to that, even though they're just doing their best and often you have to take those risks mm-hmm. to have the potential to save someone's life. But we just often move through our lives in that way where we're just like, we're risk averse because we don't want to be on the hook for the failures, not realizing that even when we succeed, it's rarely because of what we think caused the success. And then often there's so many other things going on that we're sort of blind to because when we succeed, we're just like, this is great. This was all me. I, I just did everything perfectly as mm-hmm. opposed to being like, maybe that was a little bit lucky or, or maybe I just could have done some things better. Or maybe mm-hmm. there's just as much, if not more to learn mm-hmm. from the success as opposed to the relative failure that we might spend the rest of our lives 
analyzing, if that makes sense. And so we we often see these people who have these large sales successes and, you know, they go and they write a book or they have a philosophy and we assume that that has like some special meaning to it when they might have no idea of what really caused their success. It's just like, these are, these are some things that I'm going to, in hindsight, say, yeah, because I, you know, had a, had a hamster when I was five and we had a great relationship. Like that is what really propelled Mm. me forward because Mm. in hindsight, as humans, we're very good at, as you kind of said before, we're kind of rationalizing our decisions, creating a narrative that makes sense for us, making ourselves the hero of the story Mm -hmm. in, in hindsight so that we can, we can put together, we can tell a story about any success we've ever had, even if we don't understand it at all. Yeah. Well, and some someone who came to mind as you were as you were saying that in terms of because I think it's a beautiful point in terms of and maybe the step that I would take that's a little bit further is that I think true greatness and truly truly great practitioners in any field do analyze the success mm. and I think are often I think they're very hard on themselves in failure. And I think they remain difficult on themselves in success. And mm-hmm. the person who comes to mind for that is Nick Saban. Mm-hmm. Nick Saban looks as miserable as could be <laughs> up 35 points against a team sure. because Nick Saban knows he could be up 50 points against that team. So in his mind, he's down 15 points. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, I think the poker and chess is a beautiful analogy. And and as not a super experienced chess player, I do know that quite a lot of what makes good chess players is replaying games. There's historic games you replay to learn at every move, what a better move could have been, mm-hmm. even if that's the winning player. Right. And I think Nick Saban does the same thing. I think in every game Nick Saban coaches, he is doing what he can to coach the perfect game. I think he knows that it's impossible. And I think it remains his absolute committed want is to coach the perfect game where every play is perfectly called and executed. Mm-hmm. And that his view is the game plan is is then complete. And maybe that's the reason he keeps coaching is because yeah. he's chasing this sort of this 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 dragon that isn't real. But he's the greatest college football and probably football coach of all time. Mm-hmm. I think in part because when he's down 31 points, he's upset that he's not he's he, or when he's up 35 points that he's upset he's not up 50. Mm-hmm. And I think on one hand, I think that is a trait of greatness. It's also like horribly toxic and yeah. self-sabotaging and mm. damaging to never appreciate success mm. and to hold oneself to an impossible standard. And so that's the balance there is like Nick Saban's the best football coach of all time, but he's and he's had a family and been a father and done other things in life that he's so he's not simply been this professional. Mm. He seems to be in in when he's not in football coach Nick Saban mode, he seems to be a happy guy mm-hmm. who's otherwise pretty like uh, he's not detached from reality. And so I'm really interested in him and, and maybe Bill Belichick is a certain mm-hmm. example too of someone who like he just looks miserable no matter how well things are going. Are those people we aspire to be because they're happy? No, right? Because we wouldn't aspire to be someone yeah. who appears <laughs> to be miserable most of the time. But we, so I think both of us look up to those men in the sense of they're, they're – virtually peerless in their success Mm -hmm. and they learn 
success or failure. And I think that's a really critical point. And so maybe to the extent there's an answer in this or what what I choose to pull from that, I, I don't I don't know that I want to take it to that extreme. Mm-hmm. And maybe my desire not to take it to that extreme to relate it a little bit to Gary V. Will is it is a conscious decision I'm making that will minimize the amount of professional success I'll have. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's possible. I can accept that that's that that's a possibility. That if I if I totally dedicated myself to that line of thinking, that maybe I'd find more professional success. I also might hate my life. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> right? very easy to yeah. do. <laughs> and I think the reason that like, you know, maybe maybe the interesting question is, are those people unique, those people being Belichick and, and, and um, Saban unique because they have this trait? Or are they unique because they have that trait and haven't fallen apart as people? Mm. Which is to say, are there, are there 10,000 other people who have that trait but when given the opportunity, they run themselves into a wall right? because whether it's literally a biological level of stamina of the amount of work you can do in one day without sleeping consecutively, how many months? I mean, there's very much l- literal limitations to what people can do, mm-hmm. right? Something that comes to mind in this frame of reference, and I think why this is not different between running a business and being an employee is that employees at very high demand jobs do this same thing yeah goldman sachs there was there was a a, like a i think it was like a summer one of these kind of summer clerks it's the job you get probably towards the end of college and you want to work at this company and and they take 300 people and 10 are going to get a job and it's the best firm in the world and the way you're going to win is by outworking everyone else Mm -hmm. and so you don't sleep and a guy died in the shower from sleep exhaustion because for like wow. weeks on end, he hadn't slept. He had eaten virtually nothing because he felt that this was what he needed to do to succeed. Mm-hmm. Let's accept that as, 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 as the factual scenario. What's helpful to pull from that? It isn't necessarily clear to me that that isn't what you need to do to succeed. And maybe it is truly the fact that his peers were able to do that more sustainably than him. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I'm saying that not in some sort of judgmental, i.e. he's weak way, quite the opposite. We're already talking about 1% type, intelligent, competent, capable people here. Mm-hmm. So no one in this conversation is weak yeah. in any in any real way that's meaningful. Um, but I think this is true of, of chess. I think this is true of most things. The, the highest end of of any merit hierarchy is a is marginal gain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like one of those really irritating things. I'm sure you've you've heard this and are irritated. It's like, oh, the Alabama could beat Cleveland. It's like, no, like <laughs> never, Not right? Close. And and the and the thing is that, and I use Cleveland as this sort of just stand-in for whatever is the worst of the best. Mm-hmm is still so much better right. than nearly anything comparable. How much worse are the, the Cleveland Browns on a bad year to the best team in the NFL? It's really a marginal difference, mm-hmm. ultimately. I and mean, we're talking about this is the third best left guard versus the best left guard on earth right now. Mm-hmm. That's a very, when we're talking about how many people play yeah. left guard in their <laughs> life, right? That's a, such a marginal improvement. I think when things are that way, 
at a personal level, you, you really just can't, I think it's, again, maybe this perspective is self-limiting being in the NFL is the accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why if I were the NFL, I'd never be an alpha hall of famer because to me being in the NFL is the accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And, and this goes to another one of your points of like, you know, how many years do you put in the all day, all night yeah. gas down to a lot of people? That's what college and law school was. Mm-hmm. A lot of people worked really hard in high school to get the SAT score, to go to the most competitive college they could to take the LSAT, to go to the most competitive law school they could, to work every summer during law school to get the job. Mm -hmm. And then they think, done. My years of strenuous effort at this level are behind me now. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's wrong. I don't know that that's how I view it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's how I've approached it necessarily. But to the extent that I have peers who have, that was the gas on years, and now... From here until the, the end, they've they've uh, self-sacrificed, they've delayed gratification in exchange for education and a license that has a capacity for money-making for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And the rest of their life, they're going to enjoy what those efforts, and this is an idea of resting on your laurels to some degree, but they're going to enjoy the efforts of that work. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's wrong. There are other people who, it's very much in their eyes that getting out of law school is step one. Mm-hmm. And then it's, all right, I need to go clerk for a, a federal district court judge. And then I've done that for two years. And now I'm going to jump to a federal appellate court judge. And then I'm going to jump to the Supreme Court. And there's virtually there's virtually no one who clerks for the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. right? It's like 50 people. Right. And how, I mean, my law school graduating class was 1,000. And it's one of more than 120 law schools in the country. So you make it to these 50 people. And then... You want to go get a job. Well, you've already like potentially six years delayed from your peers who graduated law school the same time as you. Mm-hmm. And then you want to go get a job. You're kind of probably going to get a job at one of the top five law firms in the country. Mm-hmm. And they're going to want you to bill between 2,000 and 22,000 hours a year, which means you're probably going to be working between 60, 70 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And you're going to want to need to do that for eight years if you want to make partner. So now we're talking about 16, you know, 14, 16 years from graduating law school where other people have then taken their foot off the gas. That you've had to work way more than people should work before you're then in a position of like, oh, now I get to make decisions about how much I want to work where I can take the gas off. And there are people who do that. Mm -hmm. That's such a small amount of people. And they're competing with other people in that group where it's marginal gain. Am I the clerk for the most prestigious judge in this clerk or in this court or the second most prestigious. Well, most people don't ever clerk. Right. And so, you know, the the point of all that is I think that you really need to have a, everyone should have a really honest, again, transparent conversation internally. Mm-hmm. Is that something you aspire to? I mean, if you sit down with like an 18-year-old, the kind of beginning, quote, unquote, of this journey, and even that you could argue isn't the beginning. You've been in school for a long time when you were 18. Yeah. A lot of people, indeed, most people stop school at 18. Mm-hmm. So so even going to college in North Carolina, we're only talking about roughly 20% of the population. Yeah. If you sit down and, and really talk and say, yeah, you know, like 14 years from now, you're really going to be in a good spot, <laughs> but you're not going to have a lot of really successful social relationships in that time. And you're not going to 
really keep up with culture very much because that's just not going to be in your in your schedule. Is that a sacrifice that's worth it? Um, I don't think it is to most people. That's why most people don't try. Mm-hmm. Not just a competence thing. I think there's really, really competent people. And I, and I think this is even true. You know, I remember in high school, there was kids who took the SAT who got a lot better than me who never went to college. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't to say they don't try in life, but just that was not the route they were interested. They weren't interested in exploiting that aspect of themselves. Yeah. Um, and so... I think for people who have, from for whatever reason, the option to some degree of setting your goals as to what you aspire to, you have to accept that there's going to be people who set higher goals and mm-hmm. achieve them. Yeah. And if that's a negative to you, I think life's really going to be very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, I think that's... And I think that's a, a mentality that a lot of people of varied capacity get stuck in is, is it's not even really keeping up with the Joneses. It's just like, I mean, it sort of is. I mean, it's an external comparison to, to, to what you have, but you know, I think you never have all the information, right? You, these, a lot of these people working in these jobs that, that make a shit ton of money have no time at all. Mm-hmm. They're exploiting their time, which is worth a tremendous amount often to an amount they don't decide, i.e. this 2,000 or 22,000 billable hour goal. Um, most of that's making someone else rich. Yeah. And to the extent that they're acquiring resources for themselves, you know, a lot of them are t- literally taking time off the end of their life from the amount of stress they're adding. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's a trade-off. And I think it's just be comfortable with the trade-off that you're making. Um, I could be working on larger, more impactful litigation cases if I had stayed working for any of the three firms that I've worked for than I am right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other aspects of those jobs that I think pretty objectively are different and reasonable people could come to different decisions as to whether or not that's superior to the alternative. Sure. Um, so, so I just think that that whatever, and it isn't a decision that I think you need to make once and then follow through for the next 60 years of your life. I mm-hmm. think it's a decision that you should constantly be reviewing and reconsidering as your wants and, and situation changes. But I think it's just, I, I think the difference between like happy, fulfilled, feeling people mm-hmm. and not is where they set their expectation and them being okay with that not being the highest possible expectation and being okay interacting sometimes regularly with people who are in some respects doing much better than you. Mm-hmm. I think that that's just something that you have to accept because I think the alternative is for everyone, but the best person unrealistic. Yeah. And to your point, economically or practically or whatever, speaking on, on probability, you're not the best person. Mm-hmm. That's probably the case so much so that it's not even worth going into the bath. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I've been talking a lot, but the next point that's kind of interesting to me is like, do the, does LeBron James ever think that? Mm. How many of the NBA players truly think they're the best NBA player in the world? And how often has the best NBA player in the world, and maybe let's take out of... Let's move ourselves before Jordan, before LeBron. 
where there was perhaps gotcha. more contention as to who that would be in any given time or era. Yeah. How many of them thought they were the best NBA player in the world? Like, is that a necessary prerequisite for obtaining that? Mm-hmm. Or could, not necessarily LeBron James, but could at any given time the very best person in the world at X have set a goal and be accepting of, I really just want to be the best I can at this, wherever that lands me in the landscape. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the most interesting question. Yeah. And what I have no idea about. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly can't speak to it in any sort of insider knowledge sort of way, but it is something that I've I've actually discussed before on some level, especially as LeBron being this sort of, low-hanging fruit in this sense as this person who has quite literally at the age of maybe 17 i don't even know when exactly he got it but has a tattoo on his chest on his back whatever deeming himself the chosen one right and sure at this point he'd, he'd had a lot of success for someone and there was a general understanding i mean they tried to change national rules when he was a junior in high school to allow people to not have to graduate high school. So he could go straight to the pros. Like he was that good that they legitimately were like, does he really need his senior year in high school mm-hmm. or can he just do this now? Mm-hmm. So on, on some level, sure, there was an idea that he was going to be something great, but that happens a lot and it doesn't work out. Right. There, there, for every LeBron, there's a, a Kwame Brown who, who, who yeah. for anyone who knows him, you know, came out of high school and, and was, pretty much a dud in the pros but or even len bias who who no fault of his own necessarily yeah, he, he died yeah. right um but yeah i think i think on some level to to quote unquote actually be the best you have to have some sort of sense of self-belief to a, a delusional degree before it's real and i think i i personally think that there's more people than you would think who think that they are the best. And there's a lot of thinks in that sentence, but that I, I do believe it is an actual prerequisite to be in that conversation, even though most people are obviously totally wrong. And some 12 year old on, on the blacktop might actually think it too, because he realizes on some subconscious level that everyone he looks up to has this mentality. And so even though it's not, it's not even self-generated, but it's absorbed in, in the culture that this is just, this is the persona I have to take on to do this. That is all, but it has to be reinforced. And so if, if you believe it, but then every day you go out and you get your ass kicked or you're, you're never the best player on the floor, you start to doubt yourself. But if you're one of those few people that every room you walk in, you are actually the best you can maintain this delusion longer and longer that I am actually, and then you get the one in a billion who just room to room, you keep scaling up. And every time you look around and it, you have something that others don't just on a, on a talent level, on a drive level, whatever it is. And so I think I'm not going to say it's a dime a dozen people that think that they have this, special quality but i think a lot of people really do believe that they are going to make it to whatever the mount olympus of what they do is and i think we we miss a lot of those people and i think we 
maybe sometimes overinflate the value of thinking that way because we never hear about the person who was like, I'm the chosen one and nothing ever happens. Right? They, they don't even go to a D3 school to play despite being 100% convinced and identifying with this truth. But to give it its due, I think it. if you want it, you, you have to kind of take the pill on that. If you really want to try to do this thing that so few people will ever be able to do, you kind of have to try. And I think it maybe comes naturally to people who do it at the highest level, again, because it is reinforced over time that it, it doesn't even necessarily have to come from them innately. They just perform well and people around them are like hey man you're dope like you're really good or it just they see how people respond and they're like man i i feel like i'm special or they've got someone in their ear and i think a lot of times it helps though it's to come back to sustainability maybe not sustainable if you have a coach or you have a parent who's in your ear all the time from an early stage saying you are the best you're going to be the best you have a destiny to do this thing and you get that at a young age, you know, you get like a Mike Tyson sort of situation where when he was 11, 12, he was essentially being hypnotized by his coach. And I mean, it, it, it translated, right? It, it did. We can see what happened to his personal life and, and that didn't go so well. But I think the earlier people can start to believe these things about themselves. And if you just happen to be lucky enough to have the talent to yeah. continue to back that up over time, and I think it all starts to snowball in a way that I, I think is interesting. I think sometimes people don't quite see it this way, but as far as like people who are hardworking, especially if we take something specific like professional sport, that a lot of that I think is actually driven by innate talent. That if you, no one is going to be hardworking when you suck. And so sure, it's, it's one thing to be like, wow, this guy is so good and he works hard. But if you see the fruits of your labor, if you see that it's paying off, you see you're getting attention, you see what it's doing for you. Yeah, unless you have like some real character issues or stuff going on at home, you're going to show up to practice every day and you're going to work hard because you can actually see a future for yourself in this profession as opposed to the person that maybe realizes, hey, even if I hit my potential, I'm probably just a starter on my high school team mm -hmm. and that's my cap versus mm -hmm. this could be my career and all of my friends and family could be taken care of if I just show up on time, I, I keep my mouth shut and I, and I do my job for the most part. I'm just interested because it seems like I agree with this, but it seems like this point contradicts maybe the earlier point, which is that you think to reach that pinnacle, you have to have the mentality that you are the best. I have a few maybe kind of case studies. Sure. Jadavion Clowney was the best high school football player in the country. Mm -hmm. When you watch his high school film, it's like a grown man playing with eight-year-olds. Sure. He just bulldozed over people. Then he goes to a good, but not a top 25 college in South Carolina. And he's probably immediately one of, if not the best, defensive end in the country. Mm -hmm. And then he goes first overall to the Texans. Jadavion Clowney is really interesting to me because I don't know if at any point before being drafted into the NFL, Jadavion Clowney worked very hard at being a football player. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take away anything from him. 
that he has it by his decisions taken away from sure. himself to some degree. But to the biological, natural point of of talent and its many ways that it manifests, and in some in some worlds that's cognitive ability, and, and well, in every world it's at least partially cognitive ability. There's nothing mm-hmm. where that that doesn't play in. Um, but he's also like six foot seven and puts on muscle in a way that that is probably in the top one percentile of people. Oh yeah. And in my in my view, um, he's sort of a, a good example of why I think the original of your two theses in my view is wrong, which is I think he thought he was the best person in every room he walked into and was right until he was wrong. Mm-hmm. When he was drafted, he wasn't, he may have been one of the five best players, talent, natural talent wise on the Houston Texans. Mm-hmm. But he probably wasn't the very best player on that football team. And he also very likely wasn't the very best defensive end in the NFL. So depending on what room he's in, right? Rookie symposium. Mm-hmm. Rookie symposium is a great example, right? There's all the defensive ends drafted that year. Jadavion Clowney is not the best defensive end drafted his year in the mm-hmm. draft. And he was the number one pick. Sure. So I don't think he was aided to the extent that he had one by having a view of I'm the best person in every room I go into because that theory failed. And my point might be that theory fails for everyone but one person alive at any given time mm-hmm. as a mathematical, I think, fact. So I don't know that it serves people who are capable of reaching that point to think that they've reached that point. Mm-hmm. Perhaps if Jadavion Clowney approached the game in the way that um, I really like uh, Pat McAfee. Mm-hmm. I don't think Pat McAfee ever thought he was the best of almost anything in most things sure. he was doing. But I think what Pat and I think what a lot of really great people do who who I don't think keep the approach of I'm the best in the world is very situational, i.e. I'm Mike Tyson fighting Evander Holyfield. I don't need to be better than Muhammad Ali in this fight. Mm-hmm. That's not the requisite. I need to be better than Evander Holyfield in this fight. I think Mike Tyson probably, whether he thought he was the best in the world or just thought he was a murderer who was being permitted to box in this given, I mean, whatever mental state he got himself in to fight as well as he did, I think a lot of it is I'm, I'm the best in the world and I'm, 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 I'm convinced of that. Um, but I don't think that's necessary in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think m- it's hard to say who the best boxer in the world is. It's probably fair to say among most people who are boxing fans that at no point in Mike Tyson's life was he the best boxer alive in the world. Maybe it's true now because Muhammad Ali's dead. Mm -hmm. So maybe active fighter is a relevant argument, but he's still lost, right? Lennox Lewis knocked out Mike Tyson, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Um, LeBron James has lost NBA finals. He's lost many, many games. So... If LeBron James approached every game as, I'd like to be the best basketball player in this game today, that doesn't even necessarily mean that he'll win the game. Mm-hmm. But I think that that if we can, if we're not talking about ourselves and we're talking about building the ideal anything, athlete, lawyer, professor, I think that, and, and this is kind of a thought that, that's been informed by this book, Atomic Habits that a friend of mine kind of put me onto, which is the focus on 
goal achievement makes it so reliant on you setting good goals as your actual end up your actual determiner of success mm-hmm. whereas if you just tracked performance and attempted to keep improving performance irrelevant of any other goal so if mike tyson in every fight decided not that I want to be the best boxer in the world or I want to be better than Muhammad Ali in this fight, but I want to be the very best boxer that Mike Tyson's capable of being today in this fight mm-hmm. and did that his whole career. It's not self-evident to me that he would have been a worse boxer and he may have been a better boxer because mm-hmm. he's not holding himself to this weird external standard that's always going to exist in anything. And I think about that in terms of, of maybe sports that are easier because there's individual sports. It's probably easier. So, so a runner... I think it's probably not a good idea for a sprinter to keep in mind how fast the fastest sprinter right then is. Mm-hmm. I don't think that serves that person very well. Um, and maybe this is kind of the point of, of, of the, the lifelong marathon. To the extent you have a career, I think your goal should just to keep getting better over the course of that career. Mm-hmm. Because it's very possible that sprinter that day could beat the world record and then tear his his muscle in his leg sure. in that moment and he never runs again. And maybe he's unsatisfied because two years later, someone just beats that record and he's just kind of forgotten to history. Whereas maybe if every race I'm going to, I'm going to be better than I was in the last race. I'm already in this echelon of among the best, best mm-hmm. races in the world. And it doesn't really serve me at all to look down the lane and see Usain Bolt and know that he's probably going to win right now. Because if my goal in every race is going to be improvement, I think for everyone who isn't the best in the world at that time, which you have effectively no way of knowing, mm-hmm. that's the best approach. And assuming that you're the person we're talking about, you can't know if you're the best in the world. I think you're rationally best suited not to think you are and indeed to assume you aren't, but that you're just going to do the best you can. Mm-hmm. And that maybe if that... So that's my disagreement. I don't I don't think it's a prerequisite. Um, and... And maybe there's a unique exception for athletics. Athletics is really weird. It, it, the whole mm-hmm. point is competition, right. <laughs> right? And so you can. There's always the internal versus external aspect of that. And in team sports, you know, maybe maybe just to really get in the weeds, we could draw a distinction between us discussing this in a basketball context, in which there are certainly positions in basketball. Mm-hmm. I don't want to diminish the the mental or strategic complexity, but. We talk about greatest of all time in the same context. We throw out an Allen Iverson and a Wilt Chamberlain. And these people don't do the same things on a basketball court, mm-hmm. but we all put them together. And, and those people could reasonably face off in some context if Allen tried to go to the, again, these yeah. are different eras, but but there could be an interaction there. But what the left tackle wants to do in a given football game and what the quarterback wants to do or what a safety wants to do are, there's no comparison mm-hmm. in terms of tracking of performance or success or expectation or impact. And so, I, again, I think there it's like you could approach it maybe as I'm the best left tackle ever. So obviously this guy's not going to sack the quarterback. Mm-hmm. Or it could be on this down, I'm not going to let up a sack. Yeah. And as long as I can keep making that my goal and achieving that goal every single time. If you make a career of not ever letting up a sack, you're the greatest left tackle ever. Mm-hmm. So so it's sort of, I mean, it's like a, this is an interesting connection to our previous conversation. It's an ends means 
target. Sure. I think if you target the means by which you believe success will arrive, then that will happen. And I think if you target success, it's going to be really difficult to reach it because everyone targets success. Mm-hmm. No one's like, I'd like to be the most mediocre X. Sure. So you're not different by wanting to be better or the best. I think you you remove yourself from the crowd of other people of similar competence as you when you focus on how you're performing. And to your point, focusing not just on the negatives, but also the positives. I won this, but could I have won this in half as many moves on the chessboard? If so, I really didn't play as well as I probably should have. Mm-hmm. And next time I need to play better to the to kind of the Nick Saban point. And if you can do all of that in a healthy mind state of being happy yeah. with each success, but wanting more, and that more ultimately being manifesting in a goal that you don't, I think, at any time need to have. I don't think the left tackle has to at any time think I'm going to be the left ta- best left tackle ever. Only that in every play, I'm going to try not to let up a sack. Mm-hmm. And I think that will lead to you being the best left tackle ever. Does that make sense? I, that, I know yeah. that's a little... No, I mean, I, I definitely get where you're coming from. And I think it's... I think it's something that I generally agree with. I think it's something that is is practical and, and useful advice for real people. And I think 99.99% of the time, it is probably the best philosophy to have and, and one that I generally prescribe to myself. I think that's as someone who's worked with athletes in the past in, in, a, in a very direct sense and even in a training sense, it's something that that I was always a proponent of. But I think the main caveat here is, is more what I was getting at is in order to be one of those true one of one, no one is in your class individuals, I, I still do think it is somewhat predicated on that mentality. And so do I think that it's the useful mentality for most people to have? No, do I think it's a prerequisite to even being one of the people that's in the room? To is it a prerequisite to being a, and, and I guess some of this sports stuff is going to be lost on a lot of people, but being a, I don't know, uh, a, a Steph Curry or a, a a generational talent. Let's just say that someone who in their time was great and then was the best at, at one point in time. But if you're trying to be this one of one outlier for all of time as a, at least some would argue uh, a Michael Jordan is, or as you were saying, a Nick Saban or a Bill Belichick or to even jump back a bit, a Mike Tyson or a Muhammad Ali. And a small side note, as someone who actually is a boxing fan, I think Mike Tyson had his claim at a time for sure, but of, of, of simply being the greatest at what he did at any given moment. But yeah, I just think that it's it's not the approach that the average individual to have should have, or even the individual who is in the one percent of the one percent already. They're in they're in whatever room that is that a select few people on the entire planet are in. But to be the individual that has all of these things come together, they they have the longevity of a career, they they have maintained their health, they've maintained their you know the psychological component the every aspect of the physical they've they've never simply lost motivation they've never they've showed up in the biggest moments they've done every single thing it takes to be that person that people can just you know hands off say no that's 
that's just the person who's the best. I think on some level, I don't think people get there by even what I think is a good philosophy that every day saying, I, I just want to be a little bit better every day. I just want to show up and do my best on every play. I think that's the sort of mentality someone who even could be some sort of generational talent could have, who could have a lot of success at the highest level, but still to make it the course of an entire career and to just have this sort of almost psychotic drive to just continue on and past the point of it even really making sense which is often what it takes to be the person that really withstands the test of time. And people can look back and just say, just look at what they did. They just kept going when it almost made no sense. Even like a Tom Brady now where it's like, what, what is he still even playing for? What is, what is driving this person beyond wanting to guarantee that no one will ever pass him at, at this point? What does he have to prove? And I think being able to compete beyond that point in whatever place you want to compete, I think is just one of those things that I think generally doesn't serve people well. I think it doesn't serve anyone else well besides, as you were saying, that right. one person who it actually works for. And so I think to your example about um, Jadavion Clowney, I, I think that's a perfect example, almost the exception that proves the rule that he's someone who got to the next level he got into that bigger room and he he wasn't the best anymore and so whether he thought he was or not it really didn't matter if he ever wanted to be the best of all time i think he still would have had to have that but it just didn't mm. pan out for him and i think even i think what you the example you provide even about like the left tackle in football for for however that is mapped onto it's i, I think it's still it's difficult because it's a complicated sport where there's a lot of positions okay. and so you can almost be this like egoless left tackle who's just the great you you essentially could you right. know and and there's a Seattle guy like that who, who I think he had like something ridiculous like 250 something like it like the amount of snaps between a sack was was so much longer than the next longest person I mean it was sure. insane right yeah. but it's it's kind of a thankless job 100 and, and and to some degree that is. That is part of it, mm -hmm. is that he doesn't require that. But to be the quarterback, to be the person who, who all the eyes are on, who all the glory goes to if there is a success, to be that is, is still something quite different. And I think the mentality necessary mm -hmm. is different for that, whereas mm -hmm. the left tackle really can almost stay in their pocket and say, I'm just going to fuck this guy up every play. Like I'm just going to really focus on this, mm -hmm. on doing my role the best. Um, and again, I think football as a sport does make it quite complicated because, like you said, the, the comparisons are just difficult. Right. And it's, it's very possible that maybe someone who did play left tackle was the had the highest degree of variance from the next best player of any position of all time. But no one's ever going to consider them the best player of all time because of how the game uh, is structured and the way we think about it and the way we like to enjoy it. But all that to say, I just think that not to not to really talk past each other here, but I think what you're saying really is what people need to hear, and I think is 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 by and large the most useful information for any individual to have. And I think it's totally unrealistic and unhelpful for anyone to aim to be the best. I I plan to I don't plan to be the best at anything in in my life ever, and I'm 100 percent fine with that. 
And I think not being fine with that is, is largely a recipe for failure and unhappiness, except for that one person. Yeah, but I get, yeah. Maybe my only desire to push back against this is, is just how underserving the word largely is. Hmm. Right? And even to take your point about left tackle, let's say that, that there are positions in that instance on a team in a sport, but in other instances in a corporate hierarchy where one could truly be the best at their given responsibilities without having to have the prerequisite I am the best in the world at this thing. Mm-hmm. And what we're kind of saying is that really applies to the quarterback. At any given time, there's one quarterback who's the best. Mm-hmm. So my statement would be, it is more certain than any other statistical statement you or I are capable of making that you should not approach life as though you're the best mm-hmm. at anything. Yeah. There's, li- there's probably nothing more certain than that. Mm-hmm. And... I'll, I'll, I'll see your point, which is there are people who will never agree with that. Almost all, if not all of them, are wrong. Mm-hmm. But there will be one who won't agree with me saying that and is the best. Mm-hmm. If you're capable of agreeing with it, you should. <laughs> Maybe is, is the takeaway, yeah. right? I mean, if you're capable of, of saying there's a chance that this is possible, then you are not in the largely unfortunate group who are self-assured of their greatness and not even greatness but one of oneness mm-hmm. I think as small as that group could be the better for everyone who would otherwise be in that group mm-hmm. and and I think that's even true if we assume that your your theory is, is true which I don't. I don't I think you could be the best quarterback of all time and approach every game with just like let me just let me just win this game and if you just do that well enough, long enough, you'll break all the records. You don't need to say, I need to throw 600 touchdown passes in my career. And, and, and maybe at this point, I don't know that Tom Brady ever thought that. Mm-hmm. Maybe he thought, I need to throw more touchdown passes than the next best passer. But I think that a person with, with otherwise opportunity and the input required could reach pinnacle of success focused entirely on the means and not the end of getting there yeah i mean i guess we'll never know really yeah it's, tough <laughs> it's a tough one because i think a lot of this stuff is even hidden from the individual 100 percent. and i think even if uh just to just stick with tom brady and, and maybe we'll bring it to a close after this yeah. even if in in public or even in private he, he might say, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just really love playing football. You know, it's, it's just really fun for me. It's, it's my passion. It's what wakes me up in the morning and I just do it for love of the game. And I just happen to be, you know, the best ever, you know, I, and, and he could really mean that, but at the same time, it, I personally feel like in, and maybe this only extends to Maybe this is, is sort of unique to sport in mm-hmm. a way. And, and I think that's yeah. something that you maybe hinted at earlier, or at least things that are very public, that it's it's performative. Mm. It's a lot of the success is based on how people respond to it. And there's there's this fundamental ego that is is necessary really to to do it at the highest level and to 
enjoy that and, and to not that I think it's a bad thing, but I think that on some level it's it's gotta kind of be there on on the inside that I when I'm taking those extra reps or I'm doing this thing that no one else would do, or when I'm making these extra sacrifices, you have to have a why. And mm. I think that is often the easiest one is I, I just want to be the best. And mm -hmm. I think it doesn't even often have to go in further detail for individuals. Like, it's not like I want to be better at this specific dimension than this specific person. It's just like this idea that a lot of people have that they just, they just want to be that person that that all others are behind in this just hyper competitive, even just sort of animalistic way that it's just like, I just want to be at the top of this hierarchy mm -hmm. and I can't really explain it, mm -hmm. but this is what matters to me more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think some people have that mm -hmm. and, and some people don't, but I, I do think those that get there don't get there without you know, they don't stumble into being the best by just like earnestly working really hard at something that is uh, more process driven. But again, this is this is pure speculation yeah. and, and, and we could probably do it for the rest of the evening yeah. <laughs> if uh, if we had the time. But yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed this one today. I think we, we went down some interesting avenues and 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 definitely got to explore some things that I I didn't plan on. So I, I appreciate you making time for this again, taking another shot at it. And I'm sure we'll be back at it sometime relatively soon. Um, but yeah, I appreciate your time. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. And before I let you go, I must say thank you. You did give me a very kind compliment at some point and I did not acknowledge it. No. Um, but I, I, I appreciate you and respect you in your time. And I look forward to doing this again soon. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you all for joining and we'll see you soon. So if you've made it this far, hopefully it's because this project has resonated with you in some way and added value to your life. And if so, it would be great if you could take that next step to do any of the things that people are always asking you to do. Subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share with a friend, give us a follow on social. I know it can feel like a chore. I get it, but it is all rather simple and easy, a lot easier than listening to this whole episode. So any support really does mean a lot to me and goes a long way towards helping this show and its message grow. The simple fact that you're still listening at this point already makes this whole thing worth it for me. Anything else is just gravy. Remember, again, please do send your questions and topics to at impostorsanon on Instagram and Twitter. I welcome them all and would love to hear from you. And oh, if you could be interested in coming on this very show, shoot us a message. Seriously, there are no requirements. I'm always looking for new guests with unique perspectives. I don't care about how many followers you have or where you went to school, and I certainly don't want to read your resume. I just like having interesting, candid conversations. So why not? You're all already a part of this project in my eyes but I'll give it a rest for today. Thanks again. Your perspective is valuable and I'll see you next time.